0: CHAPTER Eight, PART I, OF THE MAN WITH THE BLACK CORD, BY AUGUSTA GRONER, TRANSLATED BY GRACE Isabel Colbron. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. MIDNIGHT IN THE GREENHOUSE. Mr. Hartman began his studies in the factory the very next day. The bookkeeper, Bower, had been appointed his guide and showed him all the rooms in the establishment, describing the various stages of the process with considerable intelligence. The man knew his business thoroughly, and Plone had already spoken of him to his guest as a faithful and capable employee. But Bower himself, as a man, was extremely unattractive, and the impression of distaste gained by Hartman the evening before was increased by a further acquaintance with the bookkeeper. Bower was tall and fairly well built. The somewhat too heavy lines of his figure gave an impression of great strength, but his repulsive face and his bad table manners were as disagreeable as was his constant inclination to bring up only unpleasant matters in his conversation. Mueller wondered that the rest of the company did not seem to notice this. Then he realized that they were accustomed to it from seeing Bower almost daily for several years. Also, that they were willing to overlook the man's disagreeable qualities because of his other good traits. When the detective found a moment to talk it over with the general manager, he discovered that Bower was one of the originals of whom Plone had spoken the evening before. "'He's the most prosaic man you could imagine ordinarily,' said the manager, "'but I happen to have discovered that he writes poems in secret, and sends flowers to a lady whom he loves equally secretly and without any hope whatever. It is the contrast between his ordinarily prosaic nature, his complete lack of attraction, and this secret sentimentality which seems to be beyond his control, that makes him such an original.' It makes him somewhat ridiculous, I must confess. I know he is not an agreeable table companion, but we overlook it because of his other good qualities and because the poor man is so alone in the world." Mueller didn't ask who the other originals were and he was not particularly interested in the matter at the moment. The house and all those within interested him only as headquarters from which to pursue his investigations. Once Lieutenant Erlock had put him in charge of the affair, He had taken the keys of the greenhouse and had obtained from the local authorities a promise that nothing should be changed in the entire place until he wished it done. This was not the usual proceeding, but then Mueller was not a usual sort of detective, and the police in and around Vienna knew that it was worthwhile to let him go his own way in any case he had undertaken. Everything was done that could make the investigation easier for him this time, A high police official introduced him to Baron Stein, the owner of the brick factory, and made it possible for him to enter the manager's house in the role of Robert Hartman, the Polish landed proprietor. The Baron himself suggested his living in the pavilion, because right near it there was a small door in the garden wall through which he could go in and out without being seen. He asked for the key from his host on the pretext of not disturbing the family in his comings and goings, and he soon made use of it. The day after his arrival was a Sunday. He spent the morning in the factory, and in the afternoon he went out for a solitary walk. His path led him past the greenhouse. He made a thorough examination of the avenue of trees, and followed it up in the direction in which the man seen by Stillinger had gone. The end of this short arbored road led out onto one of the two main high roads, which crossed the Black Moor. It was the road known as Luxembourg Avenue, shaded by ancient trees which shed their leaves heavily in the autumn wind it was a very ancient street but not altogether a favorite one because of the loneliness of the country through which a greater part of its length led at either end of this arched avenue were the royal castles laxenburg and Schonbrunn. did the man whom stillinger had seen go down this avenue or did he turn off into one of the side roads which crossed it one of these led to the factory another to the second high road and a third to a mill on the river and each of these side roads had presumably several forks one thing only was certain that was that the man in the fog had gone first towards the southwest. this direction would lead him if he continued in it past a little shallow pond surrounded by bushes which lay between the erlock property and laxenberg avenue muller stood on the edge of this pond gazing down into the water it lay so thickly hidden between its fringe of bushes that the wind scarcely ruffled its surface The detective stood looking at the dark silent stretch of water now in case that man had been carrying urlock the murdered urlock in his arms when he first heard the shout behind him he may have left the body by the wayside and gone back for it later he pondered but he didn't put it in this pond and again he looked down at the water plants which showed just below the surface over the entire expanse of the little pool then he took up a heavy stone and threw it into the water he could see it quite clearly and was thus certain of the shallowness of the pond. He turned away from it back to the avenue, walked down to the bridge, and then returned in the direction of the factory. He had almost reached the buildings when he heard his name called, and saw Dr. Maximov behind him, waving his hat and hurrying to catch up. The Russian was on his way to the Plone House, and carried an armful of unusually beautiful chrysanthemums. Mueller's sincere admiration of the superb flowers pleased the other, so that he gave him a cordial invitation to come and see his conservatory. "'It's not far from here,' said the Russian. "'When we pass these bushes, we can catch a glimpse of my house. There, do you see that red roof behind the trees? That's where I've lived for the last four years. You must certainly come and see me.' "'I shall be very glad to. Then you've been in Austria for some time?' "'Oh, I've been here before that, even. I studied in Vienna, as so many of my countrymen do, and grew very fond of the neighbourhood. But this particular spot of it can't have very much attraction for you, apart from Miss Suzanne.' said Hartman, smiling. The doctor answered with a sigh. "'I did not know Miss Suzanne when I moved here,' he said with a touch of melancholy in his voice. "'I came here in the desire to get away from everything that reminded me of the short but very happy years of my first marriage. I didn't care where I went. After my wife's death I left my own country with my little girl, went to Paris for a while, and then came to Vienna. I looked about for a country home, for my baby is not strong, and I did not want to keep her in the city." my agent found this little place here rose cottage they call it i came and looked at it the place was pretty and i was so indifferent to everything else that i scarcely noticed how unattractive the country about here is and now i suppose you notice it less than ever remarked hartman good-naturedly yes indeed now that i have found suzanne we have been engaged for nearly two months now i am happy again if only nothing happens to prevent what do you fear i fear that something may come between me and my happiness "'But why should you fear it?' Muller halted and looked up into the other's melancholy eyes with true sympathy. Maximov smiled sadly. "'You may not know how we Russians are constituted psychically,' he said. "'Either our blood is over light or else heavy and black as the storm night. I am not of the first type, I think. I can be merry with others for a time, but I cannot shake off my natural melancholy.' "'But really,' he continued in a lighter tone, "'this is selfish of me, and it can't interest you.' and I see Suzanne and the children waving to us from the window. Let us hurry to greet them. Where's your little girl? asked Muller as they walked on more quickly. Maximov explained that Sonia had taken a slight cold yesterday and that he was afraid to bring her out. His face softened and his eyes shone in tenderness as he spoke of his little girl, and the soft-hearted detective felt a warm wave of sympathy for this good-looking and attractive man. The Russian seemed to reciprocate it, and the men parted at the door apparently the best of friends during the conversation that evening muller managed cleverly to bring the talk around to the topic which interested him most and without any one noticing his management of it he soon had them all discussing the erlock case he pretended to have heard nothing whatever about it and he showed an interest that flattered the ladies into giving him all possible detail after he had been informed as to the disappearance of old erlock from within his locked room the men of the party had something to say as to the character of this eccentric elderly bachelor. They both agreed on the fact that Leopold Erlock was a totally uninteresting personality. Maximov, who said that he occasionally went to the greenhouse to play chess with its owner, had some amusing anecdotes to tell about the pettiness of the other's outlook on life, which was oddly combined with considerable personal arrogance. But the authorities have evidently not given up hope of bringing some light into this mystery, continued the Russian, for our constable whom i met this afternoon told me that an experienced detective was expected shortly from the city to take charge of the case that's a good idea said mrs plone it struck me they were giving it up very quickly but when no one else has discovered anything after two weeks of research i don't see how a new detective is going to help remarked suzanne no if there was any clue to be found at first all traces of it are probably gone by this time and the criminal himself has had quite sufficient time to cover all his tracks said hartman "'who was playing with the little boy on his knee. "'I wonder,' he added casually, "'whether the occurrences of which you told me yesterday "'have any connection with this last mystery?' "'Whether the man with the black cord had a hand in it, you mean?' said Plone. "'It might be, but he didn't leave the cord this time, "'and he seems to take a pride in doing so.' "'There is an astounding, almost an admirable insolence in that,' "'was Hartman's next remark. "'Then they didn't find it this time, this odd visiting card?' Maximov laughed heartily at this designation for the black cord, and the talk turned on lighter things. The guest seemed to have very little interest in the subject and did not mention it again. Saying that he was tired, he left the company earlier than usual, reaching his own little habitation before nine o'clock. At about ten o'clock that night, a key was turned carefully in the great gate leading to Erlock's property. Muller entered and closed the door behind him with the same caution. Then he opened the house doors and closed them again by the light of his electric lantern. He went quickly from room to room, crossing through into the kitchen and the back hall. He examined the rear door and found it firmly closed and locked. Then he went through the rooms on the other side of the hall, back into the main corridor, out of which Erlock's bedroom and sitting room opened. His main object in this nightly visit was to examine the papers and letters in the missing man's desk, in the hope of something that would give a clue to his disappearance. When he entered the sitting-room, he closed the window-shutters carefully. Then he examined equally carefully the little table on which the open book and the candlestick stood. But what he saw there gave him no particular ideas, awoke no illuminating train of thought. He turned away from the table with a shake of the head, and carefully locked the doors of both rooms on the inside. He smiled at himself as he did it. It seemed such an unnecessary caution in a house that was so carefully closed at its entrances, and besides, as the event that had happened there proved, there was some way of getting in and out of this room otherwise than through the doors and windows. Then Mueller sat down at the desk and began to examine the bundles of letters and papers in all of its drawers. Those papers, the age of which were shown in their yellowing edges, he laid carefully back in their place. His time and his interest were given to the more recent correspondence, which was very scanty. There were a few letters from Paul written in a formal style. Not a single letter contained a request for money, nor a word of thanks for any gift. In spite of his financial difficulties, the young officer had never asked his uncle for help, and the latter had never volunteered assistance. There were a few business letters and some bills, and two or three in a woman's hand, which were signed, Eva, your grateful Eva. Aha, there is someone, and a woman at that, who has a reason to be grateful to this old egoist thought Mueller, as he read through Eva's letters. There were just thirteen of them, but they told him little. This Eva was evidently a person of education, but the letters were so very formal, stiff, and cold, that they threw no further light on her mentality. The contents of all were exactly alike. She wrote each time to acknowledge the receipt of some gift, and to express her thanks for it. But she did not mention clearly in any letter what this gift was, and there was something forced and reluctant about her thanks. The last drawer that Mueller opened contained notebooks carefully ordered. Each one of them dated with the beginning and end of the period over which the memoranda extended. Mueller began to read the two upper ones of the pile. There were figures for every day, even for the smallest expenditures. The last book contained memoranda beginning with the 1st of March and ending with the ninth of September, and on the first of each month below the item noted as wages for Mrs. Tunner came another twenty crowns for E. The old gentleman, for some reason unknown to anyone else, had sent twenty crowns every month to this Ava, whose cool letter of thanks might mean either a cold heart or a very youthful mind unused to expressing its thoughts. Muller found this matter rather interesting, but he soon came to something that was even more so, in an older book, one which bore the dates of June 1st to the end of December of a year back, Mr. Erlock had made up a summary of his entire fortune, which was invested in stocks and bonds. Muller carried in his pocket a copy of the official list of what had been found in the safe. He took it out now and compared Erlock's own list with the one made by the police on the 10th of September. There was something wrong there, something decidedly wrong." Papers to the value of at least twenty thousand crowns were missing from his safe, and in none of the notebooks of a later date was there any memoranda of the change in investment or any other disposal of the sum. And yet, Erlock had written down every half pound of butter, every bag of salt that came into his house. Muller leaned forward, resting his head in his hands, while he pondered deeply on this matter. Suddenly, he started. He thought he had heard the closing of a door and yet he realized it might have been only the creaking of a bough outside or a turn of a rusty weathercock. The detective rose softly from his seat and listened. Then he put out his left hand to catch the lantern and took his revolver with the right. There was no mistake possible now. Someone was moving in the hall. Mueller had left the key in the inside of the sitting-room door, a key on a ring from which hung several others. The detective's eyes watched the flickering of light which these keys threw out, In the faint gleam of his lantern then he moved forward slowly and listened again someone was moving out in the hall it was so quiet within the heavy walled old house that even the gentlest sound could be plainly heard muller had reached the study door by this time and again he stood listening the corridor was about fifteen yards long three rooms opening on it from either side the door to Erlock's bedroom was the center door on that side of the house whoever it was outside there, creeping so softly through the hall, was now standing in front of that bedroom door. A hand turned the knob. Mueller took his revolver in his left hand, while with his right he quickly turned the key and swung the study door open. But the hanging bunch of keys rattled betrayingly, and he who stood outside had quick ears. As the detective pulled the door open, a tall figure glided past him towards the front of the house. Stop right there or I'll shoot, called Mueller, but the man did not stop. He flung open the front glass door and dashed down the five steps leading to the ground. Mueller was equally quick in pursuit and fired as he ran, but the man gave no sign of having been hit and did not lessen his pace in the slightest. The sharp light of two electric beams threw his quick-moving shadow along the ground, for he carried a lantern also. Mueller fired a second time, but just as he did so, the man ahead of him made a quick dive around the corner of the house. As Mueller followed him in this direction, something hard struck him on the head and dazed him for a moment. But he was not injured and took up his pursuit in a second or two. The slight pause, however, was sufficient to enable the other to dash through the garden door and disappear in the blackness outside. End of chapter 8, part 1